Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. For those of you that don't know, I am Pastor Ryan. I'm the rector here. And we're excited to have you for our Palm Sunday gathering today. Now, I just want to say a couple of brief words about last week. Um, thank you for many of you who reached out to me in the day since with positive feedback um, concerning our kind of Church History 101 that we did last week. For those, those of you that asked for an extra hour on the subject, no, I'm too tired for that. Um, <laughs> no, no, seriously, I, for every one hour that you get is probably like 40 hours of me that I got to prepare for. Um, for the other half of you that felt like, wow, that was a long service, thank you for your patience. Um, now, this Sunday will be our last Sunday of preparation for our youth baptism and confirmation candidates. What we want is for them to come away with clarity and conviction in regard to how we see ourselves ultimately in Christ, but also in relationship to the church. We want clarity on that for them, and I think it's helpful for us to kind of fill in the gaps where maybe we aren't as clear as we should be as adults. Ultimately, I think our priority is this. We are in Christ. That's the good news of our baptism, right? That's the sign and the symbol that you are baptized into Christ, your old life dies, and your new Christ in the res- or sorry, your new life in the resurrection of Christ um, is born. And that you're born into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That there is a continuing church that you're meant to see yourself as part of. That we, together, are doing so through the Via Media. Who remembers what the Via Media means? Anybody? The middle way. Right? That that's what the Anglican Church is. Is that we are historic, we're Catholic, but we're also Protestant, born of the Reformation. And so you're part of that global Anglican Church. And that, the story, that this now step and stage that you're at in your life by being a part of Christ Church Oceanside, I hope, is a fulfillment of the roots of where you've come from in your faith. Whether that be Pentecostal, Baptist, Evangelical, Lutheran, Charismatic, whichever group you started in, that you would see your life here in Christ Church as continuing It's not a loss of that stream. It's not a loss of that history. But that by coming to Christ's church, you're also gaining more. You're inheriting more. And so the hope is that each man, woman, and child would own their place here. That they would see themselves securely in Jesus, own their place in this church, And put their hands to the vision. That you be a part of building with us. And as our youth go through this process, that they would then see themselves as active, not only members, but builders of this parish. Do we want that, church? So we want to represent that to our kids as they age, don't we? 
So the vision of this church really comes back to these core pieces. At the center, it's built upon Christ, the cornerstone. That's why we emphasize so consistently his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. This is the Jesus that saves, right? That's the Christ of the creeds, the Christ of the scriptures. But then we as a people, we sit under the authority of the scriptures, don't we? I'll be honest, one of the highlights of my Sunday morning is just the reading. I know you hear me go off on this all the time. I just love that part. But then we also ascend and feast at the table of our Lord. That we would see it as eating, participating in a meal with our family over all history and time. Eating of the grace we need for the week ahead and for the week that we just survived. That we would live seriously sacrificial lives, born of love. That we'd be a cause for good in this world. Right? This house, this church, needs to be stable in our union with Jesus, in our teaching of the Scriptures, in our participation with Jesus at His table, so that we're stable in the world. So we can extend out into difficult issues as activists. Bringing the good news of Jesus. Because we're hungry for salvation. I think the evangelistic nature of the church, that we would proclaim the gospel, is a matter of Christian integrity. Does Jesus save? This is not a rhetorical question, I'm asking you. Does Jesus save? then we cannot be silent in good conscience. So for our youth, as they find their place in our church and in the vision, they might be thinking, you know, church isn't necessarily, this is the word they use in my house today, church isn't bussing. I don't know what bussing means, but it means cool, I think, good, I've never felt so old as I did writing that word in my notes. I'm like, church is not bus. Right, but I think there's this sense with youth as you kind of grow up and you're in the church that you've grown up in, it's this sense of like, is it awesome? Do I want to be a part of church? I think every teen goes through that, don't they? Is it just my parents' church or my grandparents' church or is it mine? I think the reason I think I want our youth to understand we don't want to go to church is not because church is boring or it sucks or it's old. It's actually because your heart wants two things. The first thing your heart wants is integrity. You don't want to be dragged to do things you don't want to do. You want to do the things you really want to do. That's actually integrity. Did you know that? You want to do things for the right reasons. You don't want to be forced to do them. Is that fair? But the second part of it is this. The other reason we don't want to go to church is because of sinful selfishness. There's another part of our hearts. There's a part of our hearts that wants integrity, but there's another part of our hearts that wants to do things that won't fulfill us and will even hurt us 
but we still can't help but want to do them. Anyone else feel that? So this is the two parts, isn't it? Baptism and confirmation are meant to help both parts of your heart. They're supposed to help you receive more of Jesus to save you from the evil parts at work in your own heart. And to receive Jesus to equip you with integrity and confidence and conviction because you made the choice to believe in Christ and to follow Him and that this is your church. That's what's offered in confirmation and baptism. is to say, I'm not going to be forced to go. Some days I'll be reluctant and lazy. But I'm not going to be forced to go. I'm going to go because I've chosen it. And don't worry, we as adults too have the same hesitations. Some Sundays it's like, again? Do I really want to get up, right? For those of you who drive all the way from like Nanaimo and Bowser... You know, that that can feel daunting on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing I think this touches on. And I think let's be honest for a minute here. Zeal for the church in Canada is low. Zeal is low. I think by the end of COVID, it was low. It was like, why and what are we doing? For many people. All through those last you know, even four years, the amount of consistent, like, church scandals that hit the news, falls, like, the falls of big names and big churches. I think the conversations I found myself having with a lot of people were, can I continue to be a part of the church in good conscience? Can you imagine why we would have to ask that question? Isn't that sad? To go, is being a part of this part of goodness? Is it part of the cause of good in the world? And then I think there's this process for a lot of us with church hurt. Church is not always safe. Church is not always done well. Church can be hurtful. Anyone feel that? We've all been through that. One of the most common questions people ask me is like, Ryan, how did you get into that? How did you get into being a priest? And I'm like, honestly, my story, three generations of ministry, is enough reason not to do it. That's usually what I say. I say, but Jesus. But I found the real Jesus and how good he really is and how strong he is to save. It changed everything. When we talk about Palm Sunday, I think we tend to emphasize that part of the triumphal entry, right? What we don't tend to realize is what's connected. This is why I did the longer reading on the other side of that. The cleansing of the temple is not often highlighted on Palm Sunday. Right? The scene begins reminiscent of like empire, war, political power. It's Jesus entering into Jerusalem like a conquering hero. That's what they're reenacting. Right? When Caesar conquers and he comes into a city, that's what it's like. And so that's how they see it. Jesus is coming in to conquer. But the problem is, is that Jesus isn't into that. So there's a juxtaposition. He's coming in and the crowds are stoked. But how's he coming in? In humility on a donkey. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Which means, save us, we are saved. It's like the combination of the two. 
We need saving, but salvation is here. And he's the king, son of David, that was promised. The people see this as a beginning of a revolution against Roman tyranny. But where does Jesus go? Does he go straight to the Roman magistrates? No, he goes straight to the temple. He goes to the religious system. And what does he do when he gets there? He turns it on its head. I should have set up tables just to get the full effect of it. That's a big deal. Like Jesus isn't messing around. This is like one of the one and only spaces that we have where Jesus is showing this level, expressing this level of emotion, even anger. Now, I think this text gets misused all over the place. Too many people say, Jesus was angry, so I can be angry about everything. You're not Jesus. And Jesus was angry about a very specific thing. And here's the specific thing that Jesus is angry about. The temple is in a state of corruption. There's specific trespasses, or to say it like Martin, trespasses. I'm working on my Anglican trespasses. There's certain things that the temple system has fallen into that are sinful. So the system we get is they're selling animals for sacrifice, which isn't actually all wrong. So the idea is that rather than bringing your own animal from a far distance, you'd be able to sell that animal come to the temple and be able to purchase an equivalent to make your sacrifice. So it's kind of a thing of convenience. But part of the issue is where they're doing this. So they've actually filled what's called the court of the Gentiles with a market. So the court of the Gentiles is this outside area. And it was designed initially that the world nations could come to Jerusalem and worship and pray and make their offerings to God the God of Israel. So what the Jews have done in this situation is they filled the place of mission to the world with their own convenience. It's a big deal. So they prioritize their own convenience over the worship of the rest of the world. And they make no space for them. Now the other piece is this. The temple leadership instituted their own currency. Okay? And it was a cryptocurrency. No, so what you would do is you'd come in with your Roman money and you'd have to exchange it to the temple currency to make your purchases. But they'd also put a temple tax on the exchange and profiteer off of the monies meant to be devoted to sacrifice. So imagine this. You sell whatever you have to go make your sacrifice at the temple. God ends up receiving less. You spend more, right? Because there's the, the exchange rate. So you actually spend more, but you leave feeling like you haven't given what you, the amount you wanted to. Does that make sense? So it's this whole, everyone is left in this muddied, dirtied state of going, this was meant to be a sacrificial offering of atonement and of worship, and instead I'm leaving feeling slimed by the system. Like I just got screwed over. It's this corruption that Jesus ends up irate about. The other texts in the gospel say he fashions a whip 
Not for the people, but for the animals. Let's make that clear. And so he chases all the animals out of this section. He turns over the table of the tables of the money changers. And specifically, it says in this text, the stools of the pigeon guy. The pigeon guy's like, oh, my stool. <laughs> Sorry, I found that part funny. But So imagine the disruption to the whole system when Jesus does this, right? And he says to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Because they're actually robbing from those coming to give their offerings to, Christ, or to God. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 17, here's how they talk about it. The disciples see Jesus do this, and then they, their response is this. They remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's how they see Jesus. They see him fulfilling the psalm that zeal for the Father's house will consume him. Rather than flee the house of God because of its corruption, what does Jesus do? Disrupts it and restores it to its purpose. So what are we as true followers of Jesus meant to do? Give up on church? It's awfully tempting. Or do we follow Christ into a renewed zeal for the church? How much so? To the point that it would consume us. I think what we've done for many of us is go, I'm going to be in, but I'm going to hedge it off. I'm in the church. I like this one. This seems okay. But I'm going to keep these other parts of my heart back because I don't want it to go bad again. But here's what we have to understand. We're not the parts that went bad. It's the corrupt pieces. And those are the pieces that Jesus is coming for. Because I think we're meant to be these living stones completely devoted to the vision of Jesus. I've got to keep moving. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So what happens when Jesus overturns the corrupt elements and restores it back to its purpose, is the hurting enter the presence of God with their need. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? And what does He do? He heals them. So when the church becomes about money instead of God and His people, then His people can, are cut off from communing with Him. And when that happens, Jesus comes for those churches. I honestly believe that Jesus will judge and break apart a church like that. That they'll deal with him personally. Now verse 15 goes on, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So think about these things. The wonderful things restores the temple to prayer People have access to God, not commerce. Heals those in need. And then what's that third piece that it says? Stirs the hearts of children to faith. This is what Jesus does when he restores the temple. Isn't that worth noting? That Jesus captures the hearts of who? The young. That there's a spiritual outpouring upon the young that springs up in their hearts. And they're crying out, 
Hosanna to the Son of David. They're seeing their need for a Savior and expressing their own faith and hope in Him. Is that what we want? So what's the response of the religious institution to these wonderful things? Do they see the good? The chief priests are indignant to this. What that means is they're angrily annoyed. You ever experienced that in the church? Angry annoyance. I find my kids are really great at getting that response from people. They're running around, doing all, throwing balls at your head while you're trying to drink coffee. But honestly, this is part of what the life of the church is meant to look like, is that the kids are alive. And they feel at home and they feel safe. Guess what safe kids do? Make mistakes. But we want even more so, we want our kids to be involved in the worship of the church, don't we? Lifting their praise to Jesus. Verse 16, they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah, I hear it. Have you never read Psalm chapter 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Too often, the adults question the faith of the children. Too often. We're skeptical of the children's faith. To Jesus, the only thing proper happening in the temple at that moment is the faith of those children and the broken. And then he brings up this Old Testament text of Scripture to go, God has always been working in the hearts of the young. That's the point of that quote. That in order for the mouths of infants and nursing babies to be genuinely praising God, here's what needs to happen. God has to move in their heart. God prepares them. Revealing Himself to them in their little infant hearts. You hear that? That their hearts would see and know Him and that their inner person, their emotions, their thoughts of whatever capacity they can do as young children would cry out praise, joy, and worship to God. Isn't that an interesting view of how God interacts with children? Here's the thing about the faith of children. It's become, somewhere along the way in church history, kids became a theological conundrum. People are like, "Hmm, are they really Christians? Do they really believe? And when do they really believe? And then it somehow defines like how we treat them and whether or not they're welcome into this. You ever, had, you ever experienced that question? Why do we have that? Why are we suspicious of our children's faith? Because it's a mix of faith and of belief and disbelief? I don't know a single one of you here who doesn't have that mix. So what is it? Why, why do we question the legitimacy of our children's faith? Now here's the kind of questions that we end up hearing. If they're baptized as infants, are they really part of the family of God? Do children really have saving faith? When is a child old enough to believe? 
when are their faculties developed enough to decide? And I'll tell you this. I've dealt with some really old adults whose faculties don't seem fully enough to decide. I'm sorry. So who's going to gauge that? Meanwhile, here's what's in the Old Testament. It's full of God at work in the lives of the young. Think of Jacob and Joseph and Samuel and David and Josiah. And then as we move into the New Testament, we have Mary and Joseph, young teens. We have John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit. Where? In his mother's womb. He leaps in worship at the presence of Jesus. We have Jesus calling the twelve disciples who are most likely in their late teens and early 20s. Think about that for a second. Jesus was in his early 30s when he starts his ministry. And Jesus' command, let the children come to me. Does God work in the hearts of children? Should we anticipate and expect that? So here's how then the children of the Old Covenant kind of function. is. In the Old Testament, God makes covenant with families. And He does so through the covenant work of circumcision. When were the males circumcised in the Old Testament covenant? Anyone know? Eight days. Because that's the point of adulthood, right? No. The message of circumcision was a picture of God cutting away the old sinful nature and making one righteous. His promise was, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will never leave you, and one day I will send a rescuer for you. On the eighth day, that's when the child was circumcised and brought into that covenant. Because they're born into the promise. The child then grew, and what do they have? They have the choice of whether or not to hold to that covenant for themselves. The way in which they would renew their covenant with God was through a genuine heart of faith, sacrifices of atonement, and the following of seasonal fasts and feasts. It was a lifestyle of covenant renewal, a covenant which they received from their parents. Even when the people of Israel break their covenant, God comes after them, doesn't he? Now once Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise comes, we see God establish his new covenant, but the sign is no longer circumcision. What is it? The sign is baptism. So here we'll go back to our reading from Colossians today. Listen to how Paul talks about this. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
So in the new covenant, no longer are we in covenant with God through circumcision. We're now entering into covenant with God through baptism. Now what we see of the, the church in Acts is we see this model of whole families sharing in the covenant continue on from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We'll put up the slide there. This shows the baptisms of whole households in the book of Acts. In chapter 10 and 11, Cornelius, a Gentile, comes to faith, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and his whole household is baptized. In Acts 16, Lydia and her whole household receive Christ and are baptized. Crispus and his household in Acts chapter 18, the same. So we see this practice actually continue from the Old Covenant into the early church of the Scriptures and on into the early church through the traditions of the church. So here's what would happen. A family would come to Christ and all of the family in the Acts situation, all the servants in the home, all those who were part of it would share in baptism. Even the children. In the early church, we, say, we see the same thing. Tertullian talks about it. Origen talks about it. Augustine talks about it. Cyril of Jerusalem talks about it. It's this idea that no longer is it circumcision, it's baptism. This now replaces the old covenant practice. So the tradition of the early church was to continue this on. Was to baptize whole households and as infants were born, was to baptize the infants. But the plan was that they would then be catechized, so taught, and then confirmed at an age old enough where they could make a public confession of their faith and say, the baptism I received as an infant, I now confirm as an adult. I hold to and believe this and commit myself to it. That makes sense? So they're saying essentially, it's not just my father or mother's faith, it's mine. And I lay hold of it by my faith. Now here's what happened. As the centuries went on, these practices changed, and with them, new dangers were discovered. Because this is the thing about church history. Every good thing seems to also have the ability to be twisted into a bad thing. Okay? So this kind of leads up to the Reformation, which we talked a little bit about last week. We see both in the Eastern and Western churches a fall into an overemphasis on baptism as the means of salvation, with a severe underemphasis and valuing of personal faith, catechism, and the individual's agency, choice, to genuinely choose to follow Christ. So the confidence shifts from Christ and personal faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in baptism to a confidence in the church and the tradition and the clergy. Because the church baptized you and because you followed the right tradition, you're a Christian whether you like it or not. Okay? So what does this result in? It results in a Christendom of Christians in name alone. We call that nominalism. Now, this isn't true of every Christian in that time. I'm just saying this is the danger of it. So this is a Christian who's going through the motions, 
without personal faith or a transformed life. They just had the tradition done to them. Now this is a departure, isn't it? From the apostolic teaching on baptism, and and instead of placing trust for salvation in Christ the Savior, it's now just in a traditional act. And Christians believing they've received salvation while living outside of all the benefits and contrary to the Spirit of Jesus. Do you see how this would be a problem? By the time of the Reformation, many of the European churches were state-run. Okay, so run by, it would be the equivalent here, of B.C. has an official church, and you don't have a choice. As soon as you're born, you're baptized, and they automatically take tithes for the rest of your life as part of your taxes. Now, there's some convenience to that. Speaking of which, we're going to talk about our church. No, I'm just kidding. Right, so there's conveniences there. But obviously, does that foster true individual faith? No, it doesn't. It doesn't serve that well, does it? So this is the Reformation. The Reformers took big issue with this for good reason, didn't they? So baptism actually becomes a central theme of many of the Protestant theologians seeking to bring better teaching and clarity on the true nature of baptism according to the scriptures. But here's what they do. Luther and Calvin, for example, do a good job of continuing to consider infant baptism as valid as long as the child later is taught and is confirmed. Right? So they see it as continuing. But there are other groups in the Reformation, such as the Anabaptists, who would see anyone who has been infant baptized as not a true Christian, as lacking true faith, and that true salvation required a new baptism as an adult or as a believer. Okay? And so they saw anyone who was not baptized as an adult as not a true Christian. Now, throughout church history, here's what you have. You have these points of theological retrieval where something essential to the gospel has been twisted or lost in the church, and then a group will kind of rediscover it and go, look how good this is. This is essential to our faith. And is that a good thing? Especially if it's been lost or forgotten? Yeah, it's a great thing. Often, revival is connected to some kind of theological retrieval, recovery. You think of the Wesleyan revival. What do they recover? Justification by faith. Right? John Wesley goes, my heart, I grew up in the church, I'm a clergy in the church, but my own heart never came to true saving faith in Jesus. He's in the middle of a storm on a ship, and he's afraid, and he's terrified. He's going, God, why am I so afraid if I believe in you? And he he stirred in his heart. He says, my heart is strangely warm. Isn't that the language? And he's like, and my heart came to true faith in Jesus. So these are kind of the things that kick off revivals. As they go, the church stopped teaching about this. And we found it in the scriptures. And we're bringing it back. And everyone gets stoked. (laughs) Because all the benefits, the grace through that doctrine flow in and change the life. Holiness was another key aspect of the Wesleyan revival. The idea that the gospel is good enough to create 
change in your life. Wouldn't that be good news? If you're like struggling with addiction or struggling with thought patterns that are so destructive and you find out the gospel works for that, is that good news? So what does that kick off? Revival. The danger though, and what happens with the Anabaptists, is they go, we need a higher view of personal conversion and choosing baptism. That's a good thing. But then what happens is they push hard on it and they get pushed back. And persecution comes from the establishment church, even to the point of martyrdom, death. And then when persecution often results in an emphasis on one doctrine, again, they're kind of, they, you end up creating similar mistakes. Because we just found this new part, and then we'll stop emphasizing all the other good parts. Because you've got to fight so hard to hold on to it. It actually is common through many of the revivals and renewals that we see. So I'm sympathetic to that because they've worked so hard to reclaim a good thing and now they're getting so much pressure against it. Now here's where that leads us. So we have kind of this historic view of baptism and then we have the Reformation, which does a great job of reclaiming the need for personal conversion, personal laying hold of faith. Now we have modern expressions of baptism. I think we've swung the other way. So what the traditional church would say, there's too much emphasis on the actual act of baptism. Now there's too little emphasis on baptism. So now we're on the other side of it. It's good, but you don't have to do it. It's good, but you can be a Christian without it. And the emphasis now is on the benefits of public confession. I get to stand up in front of my church and say, I do believe in Jesus and get baptized, and it's a wild ride. It's super exciting for that. Now, the, I think the expectation, though, of its impact is lower now. So where the, the traditional church kind of put too much emphasis on it, if you get baptized, you're good to go. Now it's kind of the opposite to go, well, if you believe you're good to go, in baptism, you can take it or leave it. And so it's common for many people to come and say, you know, I got baptized, but I've kind of fallen away, so I want to be rebaptized. I want to make a big public thing again for that. So here's what I want to end with today, is I want to look at what it means for us to be the via media of baptism. Okay, what does it mean for our church? And so that you'd have an understanding of this for your families and for those that come in. The first thing is this. God and God alone is the only means of salvation, right? It's not an act. It's not a tradition that saves us. It's God. Do we believe that? And salvation is given by grace, right? So it's a free gift to us. It's not based on how good we do the tradition. Salvation comes by grace and grace alone. And salvation is received by what? By faith. So it's the part of the person to go, a gift is being given, I receive it, I trust it. I make it my own. Saving faith leads to obedience, doesn't it? A change of life. And so baptism is commanded by Jesus and his apostles, right? 
We say it every Sunday at the end of our service, the Great Commission. So the Son and the Spirit are at work, though, in and through the sacrament of baptism. So we want to actually hold this high view that says God does something in baptism. Not the clergy, not the tradition, but God does something in the, in the baptism. God gives grace in the baptism. Do we want people to have grace? So we should have an expectation that something is given in the midst of that. Any kind of obedience we do, God is giving grace in the midst of that. Now in our church, we celebrate both options. Infant baptism and what's called believer's baptism or adult baptism. And we encourage parents, so families, to choose according to their conscience and their child. Okay, do you understand that? But here's what that also means for us. We receive all those who have been baptized in other Christian traditions. So we don't say the Anglican expression of it is the only valid one. We see anywhere where you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is valid. And we accept you. So one of the things that will happen next Sunday is we're going to have baptisms of youth. Looks like we're going to have baptisms of infants. We're going to have confirmations where youth who were infant baptized will confirm their faith. And those who were baptized earlier will confirm their faith because they're coming of age. And we have receptions. Here's what a reception is. That's where somebody is baptized in a different church tradition, but has come to Christ church and goes, I want to be a part of this with you. Would you receive me into your fellowship, you, me into your church, and recognize my baptism? Okay, does that make sense? I realize that's a lot of options, isn't it? Isn't that a busy Sunday? Pray for me. Pray for me. Okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll be here. So, um, so that's just something for you to understand how this works, is that we're not going, in order for you to be a part of this, you have to be baptized in Anglican. We recognize the sacredness of baptism when done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you might have grown up and said, my baptism wasn't as good as I'd hoped. Or maybe my priest or my pastor actually fell, um, actually became an unhealthy or unhelpful person. Or the church that I was a part of was really hurtful to me after my baptism. And now I want to be re-baptized. That's actually the one thing we don't do. Okay? And the reason we don't do that is because none of those factors were meant to be the main thing about your baptism in the first place. The main thing about your baptism is that Christ was doing the work. I actually spent a lot of time on this when we were in Matthew 6, just going through how Jesus actually fulfills John the Baptist's role because he doesn't want to do it. And Jesus says, no, this needs to be done. So Jesus provides the righteousness for the baptizer. Jesus enters into the water as a penitent, as, a, as one who is repentant and confessing of their sins. He doesn't need to do that, does he? So if you feel like, I don't know that I understood what I was doing, Jesus did. Jesus understood it for you. 
And Jesus enters into the waters, prefiguring his crucifixion and his death. And Jesus comes out of the waters, prefiguring his resurrection. So that when you go into the water, you're participating in who? Him. The waters are his. Wherever and whatever church you were in and whatever pastor, those waters are Jesus' waters. You hear me? And so then when Jesus comes out of the water and the, the blessing of the Father upon him and the descending of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is given to him, is you. The Spirit is given to you. It's called chrism. Chrismation. So all of these things, we recognize them. So that's why we don't re-baptize. Because the, the context of your baptism is never going to be perfect. And it's never going to be exactly what you wish it would be. The point is, is that it's about Jesus. And we trust him in these humble things, just like your humble life. Does that make sense? And in this church, all, regardless of where you've been baptized and the way it looked and where you've come from, here, we are all unified in one baptism in Jesus Christ. So whether it was full immersion or sprinkling or poured over or cold brew, all of it, that's not, that doesn't count. Cold brew doesn't count. Sorry, I got caught in the coffee talk with the pour over. It just got me going. Regardless of where you come from, we're united in baptism. It's all the waters of Jesus. It's all the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So that leaves families the ability to discern for themselves what's the best option for them. Does that make sense? All of this leads to, though, a vision for faith filled children in this church. This is what we want. We want the authentic trust, genuine faith of children to be stoked, taught, trained, catechized, baptized, and confirmed here. Don't we? And we want that to be a central aspect of this church. And I think there's a little prophetic nugget in this text. I think the future of our church looks like our youth leading us in worship. I actually think that's the future. To be asking that question to go, how do our how do we train our youth to lead us in worship? And that we would be we would celebrate the fact that they are over the other choices that they might make in terms of style. That's what we want, don't we? A robust historic liturgy in the church high view of the scriptures, and youthful zeal in worship. Right? I think that's, that's the future that Jesus has taken us on. So as we gather at the table then, this is where we see the union of our baptism.